Let me encourage you, if you would, to take your Bibles and turn with me to the Old Testament book of Numbers, so named because of the Lord's um, command for uh, them to take a census or a numbering of the people. And we want to look at chapter 22. Uh, we're going to look at a rather long passage tonight. I'm not accustomed to preaching from uh, such a long passage as this, but I, but I felt it necessary so that we might, in order to, to gain a, a good picture of what is transpiring in this passage, uh, I want, want for us to read verses 4 through 35 of Numbers 22. Numbers 22, verses 4 through 35. Hear the word of the true and living God. And Moab said to the elders of Midian, This horde, speaking of Israel, will now lick up all that is around us as the ox licks up the grass of the field. So Balak, the son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at that time sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor, at Pathor, which is near the river in the land of the people of Amwa, to call him, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the earth, and they are dwelling opposite me. Come now, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the fees for divination in their hand, and they came to Balak and gave him Balak's message. And he said to them, Lodge here tonight, I will bring back word to you as the Lord Yahweh speaks to me. So the princes of Moab stayed with Balaam. And God came to Balaam and said, Who are these men with you? And Balaam said to God, Balak the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent to me, saying, Behold, the people is come out of Egypt, and it covers the face of the earth. Now come, Curse them for me. Perhaps I shall be able to fight against them and drive them out. God said to Balaam, You shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. So Balaam rose in the morning and said to the princes of Balak, Go to your own land, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. So the princes of Moab rose and went to Balak and said, Balaam refuses to come with us. Once again, Balak sent princes more in number and more honorable than these. They came to Balaam and said to him, Thus says Balak the son of Zippor, Let nothing hinder you from coming to me, for I will surely do you great honor in whatever you say to me. I will do come curse this people for me. But Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the command of the Lord my God to do less or more. So you too, please stay here tonight, that I may know what more the Lord will say to me. 
And God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If the men have come to call you, rise, go with them, but only do what I tell you. So Balaam rose in the morning and saddled his donkey and went with the princes of Moab, Balaam's donkey and the, and the angel. But God's anger was kindled because he went, and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as his adversary. Now he was riding on the donkey, and his two servants were with him. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand. And the donkey turned aside out of the road and went into the field. And Balaam struck the donkey to turn her into the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on either side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed against the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. Then the angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in the narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. And Balaam's anger was kindled and he struck the donkey with his staff. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And Balaam said to the donkey, Because you have made a fool of me, I wish I had a sword in my hand, for then I would kill you. And the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life long to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? And he said, no. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, and he bowed down and fell on his face. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to oppose you because your way is perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned aside before me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, surely just now I would have killed you and let her live. Then Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I did not know that you stood in the road against me. Now, therefore, if it is evil in your sight, I will turn back. And the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, Go with the men, but speak only the word that I tell you. So Balaam went on with the princes of Balak. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God abides forever. Let's pray. O oh Lord, as we come to examine this passage, we do sense our need to call upon you for light from above. Father, that you would come in the person of your spirit. And Father, that you would press home to our hearts understanding the truth of this, your word. 
and that it might more norm and form our lives more into the image of your Son, in whose blessed name we pray. Amen. The donkey that talked. This is a remarkably interesting and fascinating passage, both to children and to adults alike. For some people, particularly those who fancy themselves as astute and uh, critical theologians, shall we say, this passage comes to them as somewhat of a stumbling block. It demonstrates, so they contend, the fact that the Scriptures, the Bible, uh, what you have in the Bible and in the Scriptures is a collection of legends and myths. After all, any passage that speaks of a donkey that opened its mouth and begins to speak rather than bray can scarcely be taken seriously. The truth is, of course, that the Bible is anything but a collection of legends and myths. And that this passage itself is most singularly exceptional in nature. It is one of a kind. It is unique. There is no other place in the Bible where we read of such an incident as this taking place. And on that account, surely some importance and degree of interest must be attached to this event which is recorded for us here in the life of Balaam, that rather strange and mysterious figure in the Old Testament. The New Testament commentary of Jude speaks for itself in testimony to the life of this man while describing others who have run greedily in the era of Balaam for profit. And again, Peter says, of the same crowd, apparently, in his second epistle, chapter 2, verses 15 through 16. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he was rebuked for his iniquity, a dumb donkey, a dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. The narrative here in Numbers draws a sharp contrast, you'll notice, between the foolish mad prophet on the one hand and the brain donkey on the other. The brain donkey whose apparent noisiness is suddenly transformed into wise, sensible, an intelligible speech. This incident reminds me of an old piece from a bygone generation. Perhaps some still use it today. I don't know if Gladys ever used this, but when teaching new piano students how to play, it had words attached to it that concerned a donkey. They went like this, using three notes to a scale. Loudly braise the donkey as he goes the hay singing in the wrong key all along the way. We know very well that the donkey is not first cousin to the nightingale. There may be animals whose voices are less winsome and attractive 
than that of a donkey, but surely they must be very few in number. Certainly that is the case among, among, shall we say, domesticated animals. I've always thought that chickens make an especially silly sounding noise and that the bleeding of sheep is anything but attractive. However, the brain of a donkey, and I have heard one go on and on and on, it is excessively silly and foolish sounding. And yet here you have the brain of a donkey transformed, becoming something very different than what it was before. Well, let's ask the question, who was this man Balaam in Numbers 22? Well, not very much is told us about him. We learned that he was a native of Pathor near the Euphrates River, some 400 miles or so to the north, and a little east of Moab and the land of Palestine. But beyond that, though he is mentioned uh, again and again, both in the Old Testament and by three authors in the New Testament, we discover notwithstanding very little about this man. Was he perhaps a descendant of that branch of Abraham's family which remained in the apex of the Fertile Crescent uh, in Haran while Abraham and his nephew Lot continued uh, their journey to Palestine? Did he fall heir at any rate to some of the truths of God which were passed or handed down from Terah's family? Terah, of course, being the uh, father of Abraham, we just simply don't know. But apparently, Balaam was a man whose spiritual power and prophetic giftedness was widely known across the great part of the Near East in that day, known even by King Balak of Moab himself. Balak had come to fear Israel. Balak had good reason to fear Israel. And he felt himself to be weaker, militarily speaking, than his enemies on the other side, the 12 tribes of Israel. So he thought far better than any kind of soldierly strategy would be that of a more covert undercover spiritual kind of enterprise against Israel. And uh, he thought if he could seduce Balaam by offers of great reward to come down to Moab and to curse Israel for him, after all, rumor had it that Balaam was an unusually effective blesser and curser. And if he could only entice that man to do this nasty job for him, perhaps in the end, all would be well. Well, you recall from this account that I read in our hearing from Numbers 22 that Balaam's initial response was that he was attracted by the glitter of all that gold, but that he thought that he had to say no. And, of course, Balak then, as we read, sent another group of messengers, and uh, Balaam asked for time to reconsider. <laughs> and uh, he spent a whole night in prayer, apparently, uh, to see if God would speak to him further. And afterwards, 
he felt he had the liberty to go to Moab at any rate and have a try at doing what Balak requested. Though with the appearance, you'll, you'll see here, of great piety and, and seemingly great zeal, he says, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the word of the Lord my God to do less or more. Now the narrative itself, which is the special object of our attention this evening, is one of those is, is one that describes a certain episode during that journey from Pathor near the river Euphrates to the land of Moab. A great deal more could be said about Balaam, but I want for us to focus our attention this evening very quickly upon five points regarding this man. Not all of them have to do with the donkey that talked, but that donkey is continually in the background and I'll have something more to say about her in a bit. In the first place, it is clear from this passage that a man or a woman may be greatly gifted of God, greatly gifted spiritually, even be a prophet of God, and yet have no grace. That is no saving grace in his or her heart. There can be no doubt but that Balaam was an authentic prophet of God. He does not fall into the same category, of course, as an Elijah or an Isaiah or a Malachi. But what he said was true. And what the one whom he served was no idol. He served the true and living God. It was not a false god of this or that heathen nation, but he served the true and living God of heaven and earth. One of the greatest of all commentators, John Calvin, says of Balaam that though he was accustomed, <laughs> and this is, a, this is an understatement, I think, though he was accustomed to many impostures and deceptions, nonetheless it will be plain from the evidence of the facts that he was furnished with a gift of prophecy. I think Calvin's right. I think he's made a correct judgment here of what the scripture is speaking of. Balaam was a man who must be classified as a prophet of God. He even gives a, pro a prophecy concerning the Messiah. And yet if you follow the story of Balaam throughout the subsequent chapters in this same book of Numbers, you discover in the end that he dies not among the people of God, but among the enemies of the people of God. He had no grace in his heart. And we make a great mistake, you and I, when we suppose that spiritual giftedness automatically in the set by necessity implies at the same time that it is the evidence for genuine saving grace in one's heart. Remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, that is in the day of judgment, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out demons in your name? Have we not done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice 
lawlessness or iniquity. In other words, he said, you may have done great works. You may have cast out demons. You may have performed miracles and even prophesied in my name, but I never knew you. Well, there is a solemn truth which we do, learn, do well to learn with respect to ourselves and with respect to others. God's grace is what matters. The transforming power of the Holy Spirit in the heart that gives us to see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That is what matters most of all. We can speak with eloquence. We can do the work of God. We can tell others the plan of salvation. We can be prophets as Balaam was and still be lost. In the second place, this striking passage makes it very plain, I think, that it is dangerous by any reckoning that tried to move in two different opposite directions at the same time. You notice it is this that Balaam attempted to do. He wanted to please God. That was basic to him. It was a part, indeed, of his religious faith. Far more important to please God than anything else. But with that, he also wanted to please himself. And the account we have here is a description of Balaam's attempt to remain faithful to his prophetic vision and witness. That on the one hand, and also to follow all of that glittering gold on the other. The whole story is an illustration of this point. Balaam was essentially a double-minded man. The incident here in which Balaam's donkey addresses herself to him to the same effect is this. That Balaam was enough of a prophet to know where his duty lay. He knew that, but at the same time was strongly inclined to move in the opposite direction. Surely if you read it all or listen to the radio or watch television or any media at the present, you're aware of the various things that are transpiring in our nation at the present time. And you realize that the religious climate of our nation is very far from what it ought to be. And we feel ourselves deceived and appalled and put upon when we see the spectacle of religious leaders who under the pretense of serving God have immorally served themselves. And we see how little physical and moral accountability there is. But the Lord Jesus reminds us in no uncertain terms that it's impossible to serve two masters. You cannot serve God on the one hand and mammon on the other. Your allegiance, your loyalty is going to lie on one side or the other. You're either going to love the one and hate the other. There is simply no possible exception or alternative to that reality. And what we see today all around us is the evidence of that reality. And that our Lord knew what he was talking about when he reminds us that Divided loyalties bring disastrous consequences 
in the end, but to bring it home to our own doorsteps, the very sordid things that you and I see in others can also be true of you and me as well. We cannot serve God and mammon. We cannot move in two different directions. It won't work. And Balaam's example proves that it will not work beyond any question. Either God has you or something, someone else has you. In the third place, this passage reminds us so emphatically that prayer itself, and listen to me closely now, prayer itself is utterly useless and can degenerate into a sinful activity if its design is to seek the will of God when one already knows what the will of God is and is reluctant to do his will. Why? Because that kind of prayer becomes a sheer act of hypocrisy. Balaam knew the will of God. It wasn't something mysterious to him. He knew what the will of God was, yet spent a whole night in prayer. How pious that appeared. A whole night in prayer with a professed objective of seeking the will of God when God had already declared to Balaam what his will was. God's will for Balaam was that he be faithful there was no way possible in all the world that it could be right for this one who served God to curse the people of God. Balaam knew the will of God. All kinds of books have been written on the question, how do you know the will of God? The Puritans never wrote about that. And I'm sure that all of us as, as Christians have at certain times in our lives asked that question, I really wonder what the will of God is and it can at times be very difficult to discern the will of God. We so long for guidance. But I strongly su suspect this evening that a great many of us have difficulty, not so much with determining the will of God, but knowing the will of God, accepting it, and doing it. That's one of my biggest obstacles and we must always seek to do the will of God the will of God revealed in the scriptures made clear moreover by the events and experiences in our own lives the will of God is something to which we often do not wish to conform and so we squirm and we wiggle and we try to find some place to stand where the will of God so plain to us looks rather different than we can simply do what we want to do in spite of that will. It's no use praying. And it's no use asking God for wisdom and insight and understanding when his will is already plain and we do not want to do it. Now, we're remarkable creatures, you and I, and that goes for you if you're a child or a teenager just as much as it does whether you're an adult. Maybe some of us have heard or read that little verse from Shel, Shel Silverstein. Uh, it's, a, it's a poem that goes, How not to have to wash 
or, or dry the dishes. How not to have to dry the dishes. The poem goes like this. If you have to dry the dishes, such an awful boring chore. If you have to dry the dishes instead of going to the store. If you have to dry the dishes and you drop one on the floor, maybe they won't let you do the dishes anymore. There are ways and means of evading responsibility by which we avoid doing what one knows we ought to do at that level or any other level. And all too often, our problem is knowing the will of God and refusing to do it. In the fourth place, this strange and wonderful narrative about Balaam and the donkey that talked teaches us something else as well. This is a very serious, it's a very solemn thing it teaches us. And it teaches us that sometimes it can be the case that God gives us our head. That God gives us our head. That he lets us do what we want to do. Allows us, permits us to walk in the way of folly. Is it really true, you suppose, that every man, every woman has his or her, her price? That cynical observation is clearly what underlaid Balak's attempt to buy the services of Balaam. Oh, Balaam, he's pious enough, and uh, it's true that he's a prophet, but if I give him the fees for divination, that's what they're called in verse 7 of Numbers 22. If I give him the fees for divination, that is enough gold and silver, oh, he'll do what I want him to do. You know, if you can buy a man's conscience, he's no use to you anymore. If you can purchase a man's soul or a woman's soul, then there is no profit in that relationship between you and that person at all. And I'm afraid that most of us have our price, perhaps all of us, if the conditions are right. If the prospects are only glittering enough, we tend to rush along in the direction of what we want, no matter what the end promises to be. There's a madness about human nature that only the grace of God can subdue and conquer. We tend to be addictive people, you and I. And our addictions can take many different forms. We may be addictive to money or sex or fame or drink or drugs or gossip or self-importance or something else. But we are addictive people. And oftentimes the lure of what we want to have and crave and are determined to make our very own are tremendously powerful for us. In just such a way, you'll notice lured now by all the glitter of that gold and silver was the mad prophet for a prophet and it led to Balaam's ruin. Can you and I be seduced away from the pathway of God Caught and overthrown in our own folly? God can give us our head. God can say to us, 
You want it so bad, you can have it. It's yours. In dealing with this prophet Balaam, who so clearly was bound and determined to do the wrong thing in spite of what God had revealed to him his will to be, though God had warned him once, had warned him twice, and had warned him yet again, yet Balaam shows his determination to press on, to have what he meant to make his very own, despite what God had said to him and demonstrated to him to be his will. In the end, the Lord said, as it were, you want it, you can have it. But the price you pay is I turn my back on you. There's a terrible solemnity about that reality. And we need to remember that God, God in his, he will not always strive with us. There can come a time when God can say, I have had enough. I'm not going to speak to that person anymore. Do I know what time that time is? No. But I'm saying it's a solemn reality that that can happen. I think it happens sometimes under the preaching of the gospel or some other influence. There are spiritual promptings in a person's heart wherein a man or a woman senses the time has come to be reconciled to God. And then it all begins to fade and there is a postponement. And uh, yet another act of procrastination and there is no heart commitment to Christ. No commitment is ever made. And people can think, listen carefully. Well, you know, I don't feel that way now. But I'll feel that way again later on. And when I feel that way again later on, then you don't know that God will ever bring that conviction upon you again. That, that point may never come because God may give you your head and then you no longer want the things of God. And then fifthly and finally, this passage, if it does anything else, very quickly it urges us to read the signs. It's extremely important for us in life to do that. What were the signs that God sent to Balaam in this passage? Did you notice them as we read them? Well, there were several. You may think of once <laughs> of the sign of the talking donkey. What a sign. That was miraculous, was it not? The Lord opened the mouth of the donkey in order to show that the real stupidity and stubbornness laid not on the side of the donkey, but rather on the side of this supposedly wise and learned prophet. Balaam was a fool, and that brain beast had far more wisdom and insight than he. You may also think of the sign of this mighty angel, the angel of the Lord. Some students of the Bible believe that when the Old Testament speaks in this way of the angel of the Lord, that what is intended thereby is a pre-incarnate appearance of none other than the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus himself appearing. Here he stands in the way before Balaam and Balaam's donkey. Three times we're told about this with a drawn sword in his hand. Now, not full of grace and beauty, 
but full of majesty and judgment. But there is something else. The first sign, I think, to which Balaam should have heeded was the sign of his own crushed foot. You recall when the angel first appeared that the donkey saw him, although Balaam did not. And she turned aside and she went into the field. The next time to avoid the angel, the donkey pressed against the stone wall with Balaam's foot between her belly and the wall. And, and it hurt Balaam, so what did he do? But he tried to beat the donkey into submission. The third time, having no other alternative or recourse, the donkey simply fell down before the angel and the prophet's eyes were opened to see the angel of the Lord for himself. But the first sign, the sign to which he ought have heeded, was the sign of his own crushed foot. Now, my friend, I doubt that any of us have ever seen an angel with a drawn sword in his hand. And I'm fairly certain as well that you've never had the experience of listening to the brain of a beast transformed into intelligible speech like that of this donkey. But you may have had a crushed foot in your life. It may be that God has done something in your life providentially to get your attention, to make you aware of where you are in your pos position in relationship to him. What it may be will differ in various cases. Perhaps it's a guilty conscience you might be experiencing even now under the ministry of the word. It may be a lingering unease because you know as a young person that you have not listened or obeyed your parents. Perhaps you're feeling discomfort because you know that you are not where you're meant to be spiritually. Possibly you have a feeling of emptiness inside because you've never been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ or sought his peace. You have a crushed foot somewhere in your life that you've put out of sight and out of mind and you simply learn to tolerate it because you were so bound and determined to have your own way and to do your own will. And now because of Balaam and Balaam's donkey that talked, perhaps you're beginning to understand something about yourself and the meaning of that crushed foot of yours, whatever form it may have taken in your own life, and you realize that you can no longer with impunity go on ignoring that woundedness of yours. You cannot turn your back on it, pretend that it does not exist. You cannot refuse to listen to the promptings of the voice of God under the ministry of the word of God as it falls on your ears. And you realize perhaps as Balaam never did that it's high time to listen and to turn back and to realize who and what and where you are. And then for God's sake, turn around and go home. Home to the strong, forgiving arms of the Lord Jesus Christ. Home to the tender embrace 
of that love that moved God to send his son into the world to die for lost sinners and to rise again from the dead. Or perhaps you're still thinking words, that preacher's words this evening, well, they're nothing more than that of a silly brain jackass. Well, if you think, that, if you think that's the case, and you would do well to begin to cry out to God to give you eyes to see something of what the donkey saw. Namely, the angel of the Lord standing in your path, pointing to that crushed foot of yours. And with his sword yet drawn, warning you and warning you perhaps for the final time to bow to Jesus Christ. By means of this day, when a donkey talked, let's pray.